0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of prayer to ask the Lord's guidance on our study of his word today. Father, we're thankful for what you have revealed to us in your word, that we know that everything is revealed for the purpose of teaching something about you, teaching us how we are to think about reality, how we are to understand ourselves, and how we are to be able to understand and interpret the events of our lives, both in terms of our immediate experiences and surroundings, as well as in a much broader context. Father, your word tells us that you are in control, and even though we live in a time when there is much uncertainty and instability, nevertheless, in you there is perfect stability and perfect happiness. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us as we study your word today, that we may be reminded that no matter how uh, difficult times may get, no matter how uncertain things may be, that you are still in control and that we can trust in you completely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, First to Second Corinthians. I mean Second Kings, uh, chapter sixteen. Understand? Last week I kept saying First Kings instead of Second Kings. I just said Second Corinthians. I hope I don't <coughs> go off on that. I had a long day of travel yesterday. This was last week I had the opportunity to go to Tucson. I've been there before. They said uh, they wanted me to come back a little more more often than once every nineteen years. So I think I'll go back again uh, next year. John Hintz is the pastor of uh, of Tucson Bible Church. Uh, some of you know who he is. Uh, I've known him since I was uh, nine years old, and he was the wrangler at Camp Penile, and he's as as crazy as they come. And I'm just glad he's mellowed some over the years. You never really know what uh, he's going to do. When we were we uh, Friday, we drove down to Tombstone. And walked around the OK Corral and Boot Hill, and I discovered there was a small Jewish cemetery just below Boot Hill and Tombstone that I wasn't aware of, and and both cemeteries had been pretty much left unattended for a number of decades, and so uh, they had to uh, sort of uh, restructure the old Boot Hill where the Clanton. Gangs buried, and the McLowry brothers are buried, who were killed at the uh, gunfight at the OK Corral, and a number of others. But uh, they really didn't have any any records on the Jewish cemetery, so they did put a marker there to honor all of the uh, Jewish pioneers who uh, were instrumental in establishing Tombstone, because at the time that was one of the one of the largest uh, uh, mining towns. Uh, you had different towns like Cripple Creek in Colorado, and uh, Tombstone down in uh, Arizona and a number, number of other places, that when they were big, they were really big. I mean, all the big uh, 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 traveling shows went there, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt went there, and it was the place to, to go for probably uh, 10 or 15 years. So it was uh, uh, rather interesting to, uh, to go there, but on the way back, we had to go through a Border Patrol checkpoint and as we did, I mean, this is like 20 miles from the border, which is one of the problems, but but Hintz leaned out the window and said, no, I'll be in glass. At least he said that's as calm as it was, and they just kind of looked at him like he was nuts and waved us on through. So we did have a – we had a good time. And one of the great uh, sur- surprises I had there was I had the um, – opportunity to go by and visit uh, Janet Deedon's uh, mom and dad, and we've been praying for her mother since she had a stroke last year, and she was doing uh, much better, and sitting up and talking, and that was really great. And, and Janet was there, and now she's back here for about a week, so uh, really enjoyed that and the opportunity to uh, to visit with them. All right, let's uh, look at our passage in 2 Kings 16. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I took a broad look at the chapters from uh, chapter 14 through 17, looking first at the uh, kings in the northern kingdom and the deterioration there as one king after another uh, continued in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, continued to worship the two golden calves that he had set up in the south in Bethel and up in the north in uh, 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 Dan, and how the northern kingdom had just completely sold out to a non-biblical view of life they rejected God they rejected uh God as the author of the uh Mosaic covenant they rejected the Mosaic covenant they rejected the law and when we read that they're worshipping these idols it's more than just something uh they did on a uh, on a on a Sabbath or whenever they would go to these these uh, various alternate wor- uh, worship sites and high places, but they were completely sold out to the worldview, to the value system that was part of those religious systems. It was a uh, wholesale rejection of everything that was true that was taught in the in the Torah, everything that was true that had been taught by the prophets of God and a rejection of the prophets of God. And as a result, God was bringing a judgment upon the northern kingdom. And we saw that uh, five out of six of the last kings were assassinated and overthrown in some sort of uh, uh, coup. And they just brought tremendous uh, economic and political instability into the northern kingdom. One of the kings that had the longest reign was a king by the name of Pekah, who is said to have reigned for 20 years. Part of that time was because he had rejected uh, the uh, reign of Menachem, who had overthrown uh, the previous king. And Menachem had uh, established his kingship and, and come down from the north, and Pekah rejected that and had his own little fiefdom. Across the Jordan on the east side of the Jordan in in uh, the area of Gilead, and eventually he came back and uh, he uh, assassinated uh, Pekahiah and replaced him and became the king and so actually, as a, the, the sole king over the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, that period only lasted about about eight years now that's going on in the northern kingdom of Israel and in the southern kingdom of Judah. They've had a good king in Jotham, a king who has honored the Lord, and he has led the people well, but the people have rejected truth. And it's not enough to have good leaders. If you don't have the people who are following spiritual truth, who have uh, establishment doctrines in their soul, if not the word of God in their soul, then it doesn't matter how good your leaders are, it doesn't matter what kind of political solution you put in place, it isn't going to last, and it isn't going to bring prosperity and stability to the, to the country. And this uh, is seen in the shift that takes place between Jotham, who had uh, reigned for 16 years, ...and his successor, his son Ahaz, who is arguably one of the most evil kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And we read about him and his reign in two different chapters. Uh, The first is in 2 Kings chapter 16, and the other is in 2 Chronicles 28. Remember, Chronicles focuses not on any of the kings of the northern kingdom... ...but only on the southern kings of Judah, and is is written after the exile in order to fill in the gaps and show how God has worked, has worked in, in the life of, the, uh, of, of Israel in light of the Mosaic Covenant, how they were disciplined for the evil of idolatry prior to the exile and uh, now that they're back in the land to encourage them to be, to walk with the Lord. So it makes a lot out of the, the negatives of some of the kings in the, uh, in, in Judah. And what is described in Second Kings or in Second Chronicles 28 is actually more and uh, focuses on some different areas than uh, Second Kings 16, and gives an, just as bad a picture of of Ahaz. And I just briefly touched on Ahaz last week when we were when I was covering the the, the four major kings. And the south during this time. And one thing you should notice is that when you're reading through a book like Kings, and you read, uh, come to a section like this, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, where you hit a lot of kings. And then all of a sudden, when we get to chapter uh, chapter 18, we're going to really slow down again. And you have 18, 19, and 20 with Hezekiah because that's where the Lord's putting the emphasis in in the text. So there's going to be some significant things that happen with Hezekiah. He's one of the best kings in the southern kingdom, and there's a time of genuine spiritual renewal in the southern kingdom. So when things look very dark and very uh, negative and very uh, chaotic under Ahaz, Uh, Let's keep in mind that after Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah will come. So there is a future time of grace and recovery, but it was necessary for the nation to go through the horrors of the period of of, uh, Ahaz in order to get their focus uh, back on the Lord. And it's just, but unfortunately, it is just temporary because of the nature of the people's volition and their rejection of God. So let's just pick up the first Six or so verses here in 16. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned... Let me put that up on the screen. He reigned for... uh, reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. Now, here's where we get the evaluation from God. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. Now, isn't that interesting? God is described as the Lord his God, which indicates that Ahaz was a believer. And I think that he was, but he just completely gave himself over to the false worship systems of his day. He was a rebellious believer who led the uh, southern kingdom into tremendous uh perversity. And it describes that perversity and his own spiritual condition, which is the spiritual condition of those in the nation as well. We often get the leaders we deserve. The leaders we have just simply are uh reflections of the belief systems of the people that they rule. In Second Kings sixteen three we read that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. So he's following in the idolatry of the northern kingdom and especially in the fertility religions, the prosperity uh, religions, the materialistic focus of the northern kingdom. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. So we had child sacrifice according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. So just like during the period of the Judges, the king Ahaz thinks no differently than the Canaanites before him. God had punished the Canaanites by giving their land to the Israelites and having them wiped out under divine discipline. And so what this is saying is that things are now just as bad in Judah as they were under the Canaanites. The, the people of God, the people of God chose to be a priest nation have so completely rejected him and everything that he had given them that they are now living no differently than the pagans before them, and you can't tell any difference between them. So he's carrying out all of these uh, the, the, this worship system. Verse 4, he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places and the hills and under every green tree. We're told in Second Chronicles 28 that he also built uh, worship sites and idols for the Baals. Uh, In verse five, we read, "Then this is the discipline that comes." In Second Chronicles twenty-eight, it's made even more clear because of this, and for this reason, God raised up Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Now, that's the focal point of today's uh, study. Then verse six, at that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured a lot. That for those of you who've been to Israel, this is the a lot that's down on the uh, Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, for those who went w- with me on that trip, that was where we did the parasailing and had other fun, and it was 117 degrees in the shade. So they captured a lot. This again shows the divine discipline that God was bringing on Israel as He's as they're losing territory to. The, to the opposition and to Syria, and God is bringing them under the uh, fourth uh, stage of divine discipline. So in verse 6, at that time, Rezin the king of Syria, captured a lot for Syria and drove the men of Judah from a lot, and then the Edomites went to a lot and dwelt there uh, to this day. Now, that's part of the background to a crucial passage that I want to study this morning, and that's in Isaiah chapter 7. So let's turn in our Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 7. This is a time of tremendous uh, chaos in Israel. It's, they're living under a ruler who has a number of, spir- uh, of failures. First of all, he is a failure spiritually, because he's not leading the people toward God, but he is as much a part of the spiritual failure of the nation as the people are. The people in the nation have rejected God, they've rejected truth, they've rejected the scripture, and they have substituted a false system of thinking. And once you get embedded in a false system of thinking, and you become more and more divorced from reality, then you can't properly understand or interpret the things that are going on around you. And so you ascribe to certain negative events, certain chaotic events, uh, false causes. And once you have false causes, you think that certain things are caused by one thing or another, then you make more bad decisions because you've wrongly identified the situation and the causes. And so as you continue to weaken spiritually, as you continue to live in greater and greater degrees of fantasy because you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1, then the result of that is that you continue to make even worse decisions from this position of weakness and from this position of of fantasy. And so one decision piles on another, and you may go through a number of decades where things don't seem to get too bad, but eventually you reach a time of critical mass where all of these bad decisions begin to uh, all bear their a poisonous fruit, and things begin to just fall apart left and right. And this is what is happening at this time in history in the northern kingdom as they go through one ruler after another. One ruler only rule for a month, Shalom. Others rule for only a couple of years. Uh, five of six kings are assassinated and replaced by others who are even worse than they were. And that's the result of uh, about two centuries of bad decisions and idolatry. Well, the same thing is going to happen uh, in the southern kingdom, but it's going to take them longer because they do have a few kings and they do have a larger remnant in the in the nation of believers, and so they, they lasted longer. But they have, at this time under Ahaz, they are uh, living for themselves in a totally false uh, fantasy world And they're promoting child sacrifice, Baalism, which is nothing more than uh, the worship of prosperity, fertility, all of the uh, uh, sexual sensuousness that went along with that, uh, and government-sponsored idolatry. We could apply that as government-sponsored secularism, which actually was defined as a religion by the Supreme Court in a ruling back in 1973 or 1974. So there are some significant parallels between the time of Ahaz uh, and our own time. Second aspect of this is that God caused them to be defeated by the Israel-Aram alliance. The northern kingdom is going to go into an alliance with the king of Aram, or Dema- as, as centered in Damascus. This would be like a part of uh, modern Israel going into an alliance with uh, uh, Hassad up in, uh, up in Syria and then uh, fighting against uh, other Jews. So this was the type of situation. It's a complete collapse. Of God's people because they've given themselves over to idolatry and the southern kingdom is under a tremendous threat and they're going to be defeated and this is going to bring some real horror into the southern kingdom it's just briefly touched on in second kings uh, 16 where we read that that Rezin and Pekah came up to jerusalem to make war and they besieged ahaz but in order to reach Jerusalem, they had to go through the countryside. And what uh, Second Chronicles 28 tells us is that during this time, 120,000 in Judah were killed in one day, in one battle, and that at that same time, another 200,000 in Judah were captured and were being taken back up into the northern kingdom, into Israel, and some were going to go to Damascus as slaves. And it was at that time that a, a prophet uh, by the name of Oded uh, in Second Chronicles 28 warned them to release the captives, which they did. There was still enough of a sense of God's Uh, Reign and God's authority in the northern kingdom that when they heard the threat of punishment from Oded, they said, well, maybe this isn't such a good idea after all. And they clothed their captives, and they sent the 200,000 back to Judah. However, Ahaz, despite the circumstances, continued to trust in man rather than God, and he turns to Assyria for help. And that would be uh, comparable in our world, as as we do see in times, for for a nation like the United States to fall into chaotic times and then turn to uh, some traditional enemies like, let's just say, the Chinese communists in order to uh, uh, take care of all of our debt and in order to uh, uh, support and substantiate the economic circumstances uh, so that we can maintain the facade of material prosperity when the reality is that because we have uh, left God and because we have gone on the path of uh, atheistic secularism and as a culture we have rejected truth, we want to maintain that facade of prosperity. And so we live uh, on deficit spending, and we continue to act as if we have money that we no longer have. So Ahaz and his time, no different from our own time. So now we come to uh, the first part of Isaiah chapter 7. Now this is set in the same time period that we've been discussing. And in fact, much of Isaiah relates to this time period, and if you read Isaiah, you will see the messages that Isaiah brought to these kings. If uh, while, you're lo- while you're there in Isaiah 7, I'm going to read a little bit from the first chapter. In, in chapter 1, we're told that this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, so he is clearly a prophet in the southern kingdom, during the days of Uzziah at the last year of Uzziahs when he has his vision of the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6 uh Jotham during which was a time of prosperity Ahaz which a time was a time of tremendous uh, uh perversity and a time of idolatry and perversion and Hezekiah which was a time of uh focus on the Lord so Isaiah's ministry covered about 40 plus years and he saw a lot of different things going on in the nation. And in the opening chapter of Isaiah, he brings a rebuke to the nation. And it's in that opening chapter that we see uh, him describe what has been going on in the nation, and he condemns them because of their uh, shallow, superficial... Uh, spirituality. He begins in Isaiah 1-2 calling upon the heavens and the earth to be a witness to this. This is the same thing that we have uh, from uh, from Moses in the in Deuteronomy, he called upon the heavens and the earth to be a witness to that covenant. And I don't believe he's talking about just the uh, immaterial uh, planets and stars. He's talking about the inhabitants of the heavens, which are the angels, and the inhabitants of the earth, which are human beings. These are the two witness groups. And anything in the, according, done according to the law has to have two witnesses. And so this is done in the same way the Deuteronomic. Uh, covenant was uh, was restated before the witnesses of the angels and mankind. God is not doing things in secret, but He is demonstrating uh, His relationship to man and what He does before uh, the angels and man. And He goes. Uh, Isaiah goes on to say, "For the Lord has spoken: I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib." But Israel does not know, and my people uh, do not consider. And he goes on in this, in Isaiah chapter one, which is a message in and of itself, to go ahead and uh, and indict the people because of their rejection of God, and because they have just have a very superficial uh, observance of the law. When you go come down to verse twelve, God says, when you come to appear before me. Who has, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? They're just abusing the temple. He says, Bring no more futile sacrifices, incenses, an abomination to me, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you, make my pr- even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And what's the challenge? Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. In other words, this is a picture of spiritual change, spiritual turning, the washing and cleansing which is related to confession of sin and turning back to God and they are to wash themselves, make themselves clean, and put away the evil of your doings before my eyes. Well, this is the basic message that Isaiah brought to the southern kingdom because of their uh, rebelliousness and because of their apostasy. Then when we come to Isaiah... Chapter 7, we start dealing with a specific circumstance and a specific situation at the time of Ahaz. Now, this comes right after the description of Isaiah's call to be a prophet given in chapter 6, which is when he appears before the uh, throne of God. And the uh, seraphim or fly- he sees a seraphim flying over the throne of God, crying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts; the whole earth is full of his glory." And then he realizes he's before the throne of God, and he cries out, "Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips; for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." And it is at that time that a seraph flew to him with a live coal, which he took from the uh, tongs from the altar and touched his mouth. And the seraph said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. So it's a picture of the cleansing that must come before we come into the presence of God. Well, Ahaz did not have a right relationship with God. He might have been a believer because of the statement that uh, the Lord was his God, but he didn't act like it. And so we come to verse 1 of Isaiah 7, and we read, now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz the son of Jotham the son of Uzziah king of Judah that Rezin, king of Syria and Pekah the son of Remaliah king of Israel went up to Jerusalem to make war against it but could not prevail against it. Now that's almost an identical statement to what we read in 2 Kings chapter uh, 16 verse 5. I also want you to note that here he identifies the two enemies as uh, Rezin the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Remaliah, but from this point on, Isaiah and God actually do not refer to Pekah as Pekah by his name. They just call him the son of Remaliah, emphasizing that he's got he doesn't have a background, a family worthy of note. He comes from an impoverished, illegitimate house in terms of aristocracy, and he and uh, Pekah has no right to the throne. God is not a respecter of persons, and the, by referring to him as the son of Remaliah instead of by his name, God just continues to insult him. So this is uh, uh, the inspiration of Scripture. We have such uh, phony, uh, politically correct ways we always have to instruct and talk about people today. But God is not a respecter of persons, and He, he just uh, constantly uh, ridicules uh, Pica because of the way in the way that He addresses him. So that's uh, just something to observe as you read through the text. Now, as this coalition comes against this evil alliance comes against Ahaz, uh there's a uh we're told in verse 2 what what the real issues are. It was told to the house of David. Now, that is a term that refers to the aristocracy and specifically to the kingship as men who are descendants from David. And it puts our focus back on the Davidic covenant and God's promise to David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. And eventually this would culminate in a descendant of David who would rule on the throne of Israel forever and ever and bring in a perfect uh, a perfect kingdom and so instead of writing it was told to Ahaz it's the address here is to a broader group not just to Ahaz but to the house of David saying serious forces are not are deployed in Ephraim so now they begin to be afraid that uh, the northern kingdom has of Ephraim Israel um, has uh, identified itself and allied with Syria, and so the result is his heart, and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Just think about uh, when uh, Hurricane Ike went through here, and you watched all the trees bend over and watched them shake as the wind came through. That's the depiction here of the fear that entered into the thinking of those in the in the uh, Southern Kingdom, the confined threat of Israel and Syria scared them to death. And then, as we read in, in 2 Kings, as the armies actually did come down, you saw them defeat the army of, uh, of Judah and kill 160,000 in one day, capture 200,000, that this really did, ha- this wasn't just a psychological fear, there was a real threat there and a real fear that they could not escape. We all face times of fear in our lives. Sometimes the causes of fear are personal and we have personal insecurities. You may have personal fears related to a job that you think might you might lose. There are uncertainties there. You may have fears related to health. You may have fears related to other issues, problems, circumstances that you face in life, but we all face certain uh, international and national uh, fears that are quite scary if we think about them, and so many people just want to bury their head in the sand and not think about them. Not ever. I don't want to watch the news. I've heard people say, I don't want to watch uh, anything on the news. It just depresses me. There's nothing I can do about it. And basically, what that's saying is, is I don't want to understand reality. I want to live in a fantasy world, uh, just like unbelievers do, because if I hear how bad things are it'll just scare me too much. You think that's a real good attitude for a believer? See, you shouldn't get, we shouldn't get a, become afraid or scared because of the uncertainties and the instabilities of the world around us. We ought to know deep in our soul that it is necessarily unstable and insecure, and we're the only ones with a message of hope. We're the only ones who can properly understand what's going on in the world around us, and we're the only ones who, if we understand it, can provide a true answer and can go to people who are indeed frightened and scared or panicky over the circumstances and give them that solid mention, uh, solid message of real hope that only comes when we change and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ uh as our savior. Uh just in the last week we've seen the real threat of another collapse of the uh, of the stock market. It fell quite it's fallen quite a bit in the last month or so. But when you come to grips with what's happening uh in Europe, in Greece and soon in Portugal and Spain and how uh, fragile their economies are because they're just built on so much uh debt. They don't they're they're bankrupt. England is virtually bankrupt other nations in Europe are and uh, nations like the United States who are almost bankrupt are pledging uh billions of dollars from what how can you how can somebody who has nothing and is in debt to the to the extreme come along and help their next door neighbor who is also totally bankrupt oh yeah we can do that we'll just we'll just Print more money. So we have tremendous fears. The the, the EU has been, numerous people in the last six months have predicted that the EU is so fragile it could easily collapse. Sarkozy on Friday threatened to pull France out of the EU if certain things didn't take place. If that happens, then the collapse, even in the United States stock market, compared to what happened last year, I think is going to be is going to be much worse, and how's that going to affect jobs, and how's that going to affect employment and all of these other things? And some of you aren't even aware of that. Then we have the threat of Islamic uh, radicals, and you have Iran, and they are inexorably moving towards becoming a nuclear nation, and that crazy Ahmadinejad is... Uh, on the verge, you know, constantly spewing threats against Israel and the threat of uh, of nuclear war, and then there's North Korea, and we have a an administration in power, and the last one didn't do a whole lot better. Uh, that that is more uh, more focused on the appearance of doing something than actually doing something. So that by now we're at a point where we basically have two uh, have two options. Um, option number one is to just let them have uh, nuclear weapons, and option number two is we 're not going to do anything militarily is to let Israel handle it and then, in either case it 's just going to have just incredible international ramifications, and we could all be involved in just one heck of a war that uh, before long and we 're stretched too thin to really do anything uh, about it. Things just don 't look. Real, real good. And then there's the whole problem of the uh, insecure border in the U.S. and the uh, tens of thousands of illegals who are streaming across the border uh, in, in, in from uh, from Mexico into the United States. And there was an article published in the uh, Tucson paper a few weeks ago by one of the uh, Arizona state senators who had voted for this uh, uh, anti-immigration bill. And she gave a couple of examples from testimony of ranchers who lived on the border as to what they were witnessing in, as these hordes of uh, of illegals are coming across their, their property. Some of them have had as many as 500 people a day coming across their property. They, they don't feel safe. They can't leave their ranches. They can't conduct their business. They have drug dealers who daily bring caravans like like a military procession across their their ranches where they have men out on point guard followed by a number of uh, armed guards with uh, with vehicles with having uh, uh AK47s and other automatic weapons mounted on them and then the drugs come then more guards and they have their flankers out and every day this kind of a uh, procession goes across their their ranch one rancher testified that he had found a number of, of dead people on his property, and he had also found two Korans on his property. So who, what else is coming across the border? What kind of uh, terrorists are coming across the border to try to uh, do damage to the United States? But we don't hear this kind of stuff very clearly on m- much of the news, and most people are too busy living their lives to put their focus and their attention on it, but when, and, and a lot of people are just too scared. They don't want to know. But that's the reality. We live, since 9-11, most of us who think about it have realized that, that our security and our stability just hangs by a, an extremely fragile thread. If they had been successful with that, with that uh, fourth airplane to fly it into the Capitol or the White House, we would still be looking at a, at a, uh, at a Dow Jones average somewhere in the uh, low 1,000s. The devastation that can come from any of this is just unbelievable. So are we paying attention to it? And as believers, it's easy to get, to get scared. But why should we get scared? That's the kind of situation that was, the southern kingdom was facing. They were scared to death and they weren't focusing on, on the Lord at all. And the Lord is going to uh, inject himself very clearly into this whole, whole circumstance. And he tells the house of David, not basically, not to worry, and in verse three we read then the Lord said to Isaiah, "Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and share Yashub your son at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller 's field now this this uh, upper pool was a pool where the, the women would go, and they would often wash clothes, and it was a place where those who were involved in uh, uh, in the making of garments uh, and dyes, where they would uh, prepare the uh, the material, and so this was a place where numerous people would would gather, and so the king would go up there. And Isaiah is instructed to take his son and to go and to confront the king. And in v- verse four, God tells him what what to say, and he says to uh, Ahaz, he is to say to Ahaz, take heed. And be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. Four commands. The first command basically means to be alert, to wake up. Uh, be quiet. That is the same word that's used in other places to uh, rest before the Lord. Uh, do not fear or be faint-hearted. In other words, don't give in to panic. Uh, Ahaz is being told here to get a grip. You know, you need to... Uh, Control your emotions. You need to focus on something that's going to give you some, uh, stability. You need to focus on the solution instead of the problem and not give in to your fears, not take counsel, uh, of your fears. And then God says, after these, these four commands, He says, for these two stubs of smoking brand, uh, smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resin and Syria and notice, He doesn't say Pika, He says, and the son of Remaliah. Again, God's uh, shown a little disrespect for, for Pica. Now, one thing that you ought to uh, note here is when he refers to them as two stubs of smoking firebrands, a firebrand is like a torch that you'd use to light a fire. But as that torch burns down to where there's nothing left except basically a stub, it's not good for anything anymore. It, it looks like it uh, might cause a little pain, and it could, but it's just producing a lot of smoke, no fire. Uh, it may cause your eyes to burn a little bit, but it's, it's lost its real effectiveness. And that's what God is saying here by calling them two stubs of smoking firebrands. Uh, they're basically uh, out of any uh, ability to do any real damage, any con- uh, long-term damage to Judah. And they're just a couple of stubs that are left over. They're going to cause a little more pain and suffering, but nothing. Of any real significance. Now, before and and the word that's used there for um, for stub is a word that simply means the tail. It's used a tail of animals, uh, but it means the end of the firebrand when it's when it's just about just about gone. Now, one other thing I want you to pay attention to in this verse is you have these four commands: to take heed and be quiet, do not be fear uh, do not fear or be faint-hearted. Now those commands are all given as as a masculine singular imperative. In other words, they're addressed specifically and only to Ahaz. They're they're not a plural. Now that's very important in following through what happens in this chapter is to pay attention to the to the plurals and the singular commands. So as long as it's singular, God's just addressing uh, Ahaz. When it's plural, he's addressing a broader. Uh, group, the house of David or the nation of Judah. Verse five, we read, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah plotted evil against you. Again, a second person singular pronoun. And this saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabeel. So they, th- what they want to do is wipe out and destroy the house of David. This is a manifestation of Satan's plot and conspiracy to block God and his ability to bring about the fulfillment of his covenant with David and to have a Davidic king, the Messiah, sit on the throne of, of, of Judah, of Jerusalem. And so their plot is to wipe out and destroy the house of David. So there is a real spiritual component to their agenda, and that is to destroy God's plan. And so God gives Ahaz a personal promise. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. In other words, no matter how bad it looks, let's rely on the promises of God and His plan. He's in control, and even though when He's in control, He may allow certain catastrophes and crises to occur, but it's still under His control, so we as believers can relax, and we need to trust in Him where there is real hope and real stability. Then God goes on to say in verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. That's how he's referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, in all actuality, this, this occurs about about 735 uh, or so, 736, somewhere in there. In all actuality, in 13 years, the northern kingdom will be destroyed by Assyria, but it's going to take the next 65 years for the Assyrians to complete their uh removal of the population removing them and resettling them throughout the Assyrian empire so that's why uh he he has 65 years there it's not 65 years to the defeat of the northern kingdom but 65 years the next 65 years we'll see they're to- they're being totally uh wiped out and removed from their from their homeland in verse 9, God says, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. Notice so he doesn't call him by name. God just has no respect for him at all. And the head of, uh, uh, and he says, if you will not believe, uh, surely you will not be established. Now, what happens there is that the pronoun changes in the Hebrew. It's no longer second person singing. He's not addressing Ahaz, saying, if you, Ahaz, don't believe. He's addressing Judah. And the house of David, and saying, "If you don't believe as a southern kingdom, if you don't get back, uh, get right with God, and turn back in terms of obedience, the same thing that's happening in the north is going to happen to you." So he shifts from talking personally to Ahaz to talking to the uh, house of David and uh, as the rulers of the of the southern kingdom. Then we come to verses 10 and 11. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Go on, Ahaz, I'm giving you permission. Ask me for a sign to confirm that the promise I've given you is true. But Ahaz is so arrogant, he refuses to do that, and he acts like he's uh, so sanctimonious. Lord, I'm not going to be the one to ask for a sign. And so, what's he do? He just disobeying God. God said, "Ask for a sign." He says, "Oh no, 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 no! I'm not going to do that. I'm too humble for that." So he 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 just show, reveals his 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 spiritual depravity. But in verse 13, then God gives a promise. Then he then uh, he said, "Now, as God speaking, here now, O house of David." So he's addressing the house of David. That's the large group. O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you uh excuse me, this would be Isaiah speaking for God, he's saying, Here now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? And then we get the promise, verse fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this is a promise we all talk about, we hear Christmas and we recite many times as this relates to the Lord Jesus Christ who was uh, called Emmanuel and given that title by Gabriel when he announced to Mary when she became pregnant that she would have a son and his name would be called Emmanuel. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 14. But the context of Isaiah 14 comes in the midst of all of this instability and chaos as the southern kingdom is being defeated and what God is pointing out is that the real solution to the problem isn't a political solution. It's a spiritual solution. A political solution without a spiritual solution isn't going to last long. They had a political solution under Jotham before Ahaz, and it didn't last. When Ahaz became king, the the, the negative volition and the idolatry in the hearts of the people just took him right into the perversity of all of the false religions that came under Ahaz. Ahaz is followed by his son and how Hezekiah got to be such a God-focused king and such, with such a horrible idolatrous parents, I'll never know. It may be some hope to some of you parents who think you weren't very good parents. Um, you see you see good parents have lousy kids in scripture and you see lousy parents have great kids in scripture so so we just pray that God is gracious to uh, us as parents but the Lord says he's going to give a sign and this is that the virgin shall conceive now when you have this kind of grammatical construction here in especially in Isaiah with the uh, announcement of behold And then when this is followed by a participle, as it is here, it always refers to a future action. He's not talking to something that's already present. He's not talking about uh, uh, that his wife is pregnant. These are some of the other views that are there. He's not talking about a present fulfillment at all. He is addressing a future issue related to the survival of the house of David. Therefore, the Lord himself... Will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the virgin here is a, it is a, uh, the word has the uh, article with it. And in this, this verse, uh, when you have in this verse, the, the U's here are all in the plural, indicating that this is an address to the house of David. He's giving the house of David a sign. For their survival, not he's not talking directly to Ahaz, and and the virgin here, with the definite article, indicates the people had an understanding that this wasn't a virgin, it was the virgin. It was, it was spe- specifically related to Old Testament prophecy, going back to Genesis 3:15, 3, and the term of the seed of the woman, who is the one who would bring deliverance from sin and defeat the serpent. Now, the word that's translated virgin here is a Hebrew word Alma. There's a lot of debate that you'll read about when you uh, look perhaps in your notes in your NIV Bible or in some other study Bible. But it always refers to a young unmarried woman who is of marriageable age. It doesn't necessarily mean one who is a virgin. But it doesn't take a whole lot of just thinking about the passage to realize that God is talking about a miraculous sign, and it's not a miraculous sign for an unmarried non-virgin to have a child. There's nothing unique about that and so this is talking about something that's unique and so it's clear that this is a, this is talking about a virgin which is clearly how the word is used in a number of contexts there are a couple of exceptions and the rabbis understood this when they translated this into the greek into in septuagint that this would this, this refer to a virgin so they used the greek word parthenos when they translated this into uh into greek and so This is one of the greatest prophecies about the coming Messiah, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is God's message of hope to the house of David, that his promises will be true. Now, there may be a lot of chaos. There may be a lot of bad things that happen in life. We may go through a lot of adversity, both individually as well as, as a nation. But God is still in control, and we can relax and trust in him and get your eyes off of the details of life and put your eyes on God's plan and purpose for your life as a believer in having the real message of hope and stability for a nation and for a people and for individuals that are going through uh, through a crisis. And so God gives this message to uh, the people, to Ahaz, and to the people that there will be Uh, There will be stability, and God's promises will come to pass, and there will indeed be a future for Israel. And that's the context. If you read through the first part of Isaiah, again and again Isaiah moves from his condemnation of the people and what they are doing at that time to the future kingdom and the focus is that even though you may go through a lot of chaos and you may go through a lot of uh, a lot of wars and destruction and even be taken out of the land god's going to bring you back he'll fulfill his promise and he'll establish the kingdom and that same message is true for us today as believers is that we may not be living in a covenant nation with a promise of an, being an eternal state like israel has but that doesn't matter as believers in the body of christ we know that God has a future for us, and he has a plan for us that is specifically related to our being in the body of Christ. And that purpose has to do with our witness and our testimony to the world around us. And so if we are going to be able to handle life in the coming chaos, and I think there could there's going to be some real chaos in the future, the only thing that's going to give us stability is going to be the doctrine in our soul and that we have been trained in the small adversities to trust in God and to focus on Him so that when the really tough time comes, it's going to be second nature to us to, to focus on Him. And rather than running around in panic and fear and shaking like trees in a windy storm, Uh, we're going to have stability, and that will give us an opportunity to be a real witness and fulfill the ministry that God has given us as believers and as members of the body of Christ. And that always focuses on the hope of the Savior. And that's the message you get in Isaiah 7 and, again, in Isaiah chapter 9, is that only Jesus Christ provides stability and meaning in life, only the Savior who ultimately will come back, and will uh, establish his kingdom on the earth, because that's the only political kingdom that will have a solid, sound political solution. Nothing else in this life prior to that, no political solution is going to be a sound solution that will last, especially if the people don't turn first. A a political solution without a spiritual solution is just a temporary band-aid. You have to have that spiritual solution first. And if we as a nation don't turn back to God, then it doesn't matter what happens with the tea parties. It doesn't matter what happens in November. It doesn't, none of this matters. It won't last because the people have to have integrity. They have to have values, and that can only come uh, from the word of God. And where do they get that? They only get that from hearing it from other believers who know the truth and can communicate that at the workplace, to their families, to their friends. And that's the mission that God has called us to. But it's not easy living in a time like the time of Ahaz. We would much rather live in a time like the time of Hezekiah, where we see the great deliverance of God. But we don't choose our times. God does. But he's given us the same mission. So we can be the, those who are the real Uh, Preachers, proclaimers of hope. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you are in control even when things seem to be out of control, that you have given us a message of hope, a message of confidence that focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he did at the cross. Because he died for our sins, sins are paid for, the penalty of sin is taken care of, and we can come to the cross to trust in Christ and have eternal life by faith alone, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us, and that He alone is the one who can provide the perfect solution to the problems and the cares and the worries of life, and that we need to learn to trust in Him to rely upon your promises as believers, uh, resting in in his in, in your control and in his Uh, power and provision, and the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills each one of us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, that they would take this opportunity to do so. All that you have to do to have real hope and confidence is to believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Following that, you need to grow and mature as a believer by studying his word and, and making it a part of your life and part of your thinking. Father, we pray that you challenge each one of us in terms of our own lives and our own circumstances with the truths that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.